Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, hold up in San Francisco. I am holed up in San Francisco. I can't remember if I told you off air or on air that I bought a freezer like a bit before we recorded the last episode, but I don't know. I've not been going out of the apartment too much. This is all, it's a lot. And you managed to get the freezer stocked? The freezer was stocked and I managed to do it before the madness mostly started. I was out there wearing a mask, looking around at Costco thinking, oh my gosh, like, all these people in this line and it, I feel like this thing is all around us and everyone's on top of each other and no one's doing anything. This is really scary, but it's better to do all this stuff early rather than later. And yeah, I even managed to get to my favorite bakery and freeze a few croissants for comfort food. So I, I feel like- Look at you, look at I know, you living yeah, yeah. the high life. I even got some gym equipment before it all sold out on Amazon because again, like once everyone realizes the gyms are going to shut, it all clamps down. I feel like I'm doing a poor impersonation of Will Smith in I Am Legend, like stuck in my apartment, ready to live <laughs> up here for the next however long it's going to be. And I also realize I shouldn't be complaining. I'm very lucky because there are a lot of folks out there who are really struggling with this and my heart goes out to them, health and jobs and everything else. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned masks because one wishes everyone had been wearing them at the time you went out, which was not that long ago. And yet it's only now after we have completion on the economy and everyone is stuck at home that suddenly minds are changing. Perhaps this mask idea, which, by the way, every country in Asia did and does, might be a good idea. It kind of blows my mind, like on lots of levels, like on one level, you go and take a look at the statistics of the countries that seem to be handling this well, and they seem to have a very strong culture of wearing masks. But the other thing is, just at its most basic level, this is a respiratory disease that's spread via droplets. Like the idea that masks aren't going to help you seems to, uh, again, I'm not claiming to be a scientist, but when it comes to my personal health and the health of my friends and my family, it's like, it just seems crazy not to be doing it. So it's interesting to go back to January. I recall very clearly, I don't remember if we talked about this, but it was the moment that I read about China closing Wuhan. And something that I've talked about in the Daily Update and with some interviews with folks is the key with China is you have to look at what they do, not what they say. And if they are saying there's a few hundred cases and they are closing down a city of 11 million people and saying you can't move, you can't go anywhere, you don't believe the few hundred cases, you believe the holy cow, this country, which much of the sort of legitimacy of the central government rests on the economy, continually growing and making people more prosperous, is completely shutting down a major city. There was probably something significant going on here. And my first reaction when I saw that was to order some masks. I was actually worried that people in Taiwan would see this and they'd be sold out all here. So I actually bought a few off of Amazon. And then it was funny because a few weeks later, I was writing about the coronavirus or maybe the next week or something. And I sort of mentioned this, that I had bought some masks in response to this event. And I kind of felt compelled to say, well, you know, washing hands is more important, blah, 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 because it had already become sort of forefront U.S. discussion that don't wear masks, don't buy masks, don't buy masks. And I'm like, well, I felt sort of guilted into like I felt bad for buying masks in part. I mean, part of it is certainly healthcare workers need it first and foremost. And we can sort of and there's actually right. a few interesting points about that to talk about. And that's absolutely a true thing. But the second thing was I'm like, well, I, the experts say this. So maybe I'm the moron for buying masks, but I did buy them, but also wash your hands. And then I look back a couple of weeks later, I'm like, one, I'm glad I bought masks. But two, I'm 
irritated that I sort of put that caveat in a daily update because why was I listening to these experts that were wrong? And again, it was Western experts because the Taiwanese experts were definitely telling everyone to wear masks. Yeah, I think you've referenced it in your writing a couple of times or maybe once over the past week or so, but that Zeynep Tufeci article about don't lie and like one of the biggest issues in the time of the last pandemic was people need to be able to trust authority figures. And when they come out and state with absolute certainty that this isn't going to help only in these circumstances, even if their motives are pure, I mean, I understand the motivation of like, we're short on masks. It turns out a whole bunch of folks from China were going around the world buying up masks and sending it back to China because- Two billion masks around the world. Yeah, it's nuts. And I kind of get it. Like they were being affected. The rest of the world wouldn't like, okay, fine. I get it. And maybe the government should have been putting restrictions on that, but they hadn't. So fine. But this notion that you lie, even for good reasons, just strikes me as so wrongheaded because every time you do something like that, you erode the credibility of a voice that people need to be able to look to and trust and not question, oh, are they telling me this for some other reason? Because as you do that more and more, people stop listening, people stop paying attention. This is the kind of thing that fuels conspiracy theories that are crazy. It's like, it's so counterproductive. There's a few angles of this to get into. First and foremost, and just to be super clear, particularly those high-level N95 masks, which are not the ones I ordered for the record, those absolutely have to be safe for healthcare workers. And even the surgical masks that are not as effective, but still quite effective, I completely agree that's where things need to go first. But the proper response to this, and I mentioned this in the article the previous week as well, is you know, I think the Taiwanese government actually set a good example here. So number one, they actually didn't mandate the use of masks immediately. And right now, it's still only if you're on public transportation, but a lot of businesses do. You can't actually go in if you don't wear a mask. So it's much more of a grounds up sort of thing. But like I said, it was kind of already in the culture to wear masks. And part of this is because of SARS in 2003. So first and foremost, they, they didn't necessarily mandate it. But the key thing they did was number two, to your point, they did ban the export of masks almost immediately. And then number three, they immediately ramped up production. That was the chief focus of the government. And they went from producing 2.5 million masks a day, about, I can't remember these at numbers, in January when Wuhan fell, to this week they're going to be up to 15 million masks a day. And so in two months, they're just completely ramping it up. And this involved a widespread effort. They requisitioned some factories, whether the factory owners want it or not. And then they recruited the best sort of like industrial engineers from companies all over Taiwan, brought them together and like said, like, we are going to go from having five lines to 60 lines or whatever it is. We're going to get this out there. There's a few frustrations I have about the lie. And frustration number one is it presumes this sort of static view of the world where this is how many masks we have and we have to figure out how we can conserve them. When what we need is to stimulate a response to get more masks, right? It was like a mindset mistake where if you're not instilling the drive and the fear, like in some respects, shortages are a very bad thing. High prices or price gouging is a bad thing. But in reality, in long view, it's a good thing because it spurs action. It spurs a response in the market to produce these sorts of things. And honestly, we talked about this a little bit previously, but a big problem with the U.S. response was centralization, was the CDC saying, we're going to do it. It was particularly the FDA in particular saying, you can't even do tests. You can't develop them on your own. We have to, it has to all be done centrally. And it was only once that was loosened that the U.S. was stuck at a few hundred tests a day for weeks and weeks and weeks, and now is doing like 70,000 or 100,000 tests a day, right? A massive, massive increase. What was the key to that increase? Was letting loose, letting 
letting go of that. And that never happened with the mask until really like this last week. Imagine if the spur, the market pressure had been brought to bear in late January and we could be bringing on new lines, bringing on new production, we would be in such a better place today. So that's sort of the problem number one with the lie, which is you don't spur the appropriate reaction. The Taiwan example is really great. And there's a similar one in the New York Times, I think today or yesterday, when you guys listen to this around how South Korea responded and the government buying up production and then distributing it through pharmacies and then the controlled sale of these masks to people because people were lining up. So then there were certain days you could go to a pharmacy and buy masks, et cetera, et cetera. I think, and this might be a recurring theme for this podcast, like that kind of approach works well for South Korea. It's not necessarily the right approach to the United States. Like that's not necessarily the way that things work best here. It's like, okay, it's worked really well over here. This place, just like you said, it runs on a market economy and recognizing and leveraging the strengths and the cultural differences is critical to crafting an effective response. And I totally agree with what you just said. It limited the natural response of the system and the culture to start producing the things. It's like, oh, this isn't so important. We don't need to produce these. Right. That's number one. Number two, though, is I think there was two parts of the talk about masks. So just to back up with SARS-1, you weren't very infectious until you had symptoms. And that was a big reason why SARS was contained to the official records are, I think, like 800 deaths. Again, there's a lot of doubt about that, particularly the Chinese numbers, because they covered it up for something like six months. And so no one actually really knows what the numbers were. But regardless, it was obviously far, far fewer than this time, even though the case fatality rate was much higher. And the reason why it was far fewer is it was much easier to sort of find and control and limit and quarantine people who had it because they had fevers, right? They were infectious. That was the stage they were infectious. What's coming out about SARS-2, or the technical name is SARS-CoV-2. And so SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and then COVID-19 is the sickness that follows. But what's coming out about SARS-CoV-2 is that it can actually enter the body, start reproducing, and become infectious before symptoms, or even without any symptoms at all. And so in some respects, people without symptoms are less infectious because they're not necessarily coughing or in sneezing and projecting. But like, for example, you could be singing. There's that awful story of that choir where everyone got infected. When you sing, you're actually spewing out way more droplets than you are normally just because you're projecting your voice. We're always, you know, spitting out droplets all the time as anyone who sits too close to their screen can attest. As you look at my screen right now, as I'm getting ramped up while podcasting. (laughs) And so they're less infectious because they're not necessarily projecting with coughs and sneezes, but they're still very, very infectious. The whole misnomer with the masks was that, oh, you don't need to wear it because you're not sick. It's not going to protect you. What happens if you don't know if you're sick and you're out there and you're actually projecting the sickness around you and you have no idea? And so the big thing is it protects other people from you. Right. So that's the big advantage. Well, this gets to the further problem with the big lie, as it were, is that if we have a directive that says only wear it if you're sick, guess what happens if you're wearing the mask? Guess what everyone thought about you in the line at Costco? Yeah, this guy, I need to stay the hell away from him. I don't want to talk to him. Get out of my store because you have the virus. That's right. When the reality is lots of the other people may have had the virus, but they weren't wearing it. So there's two parts. Number one, you want people to wear it because they may be sick or they may be carrying the virus and not know it. And number two, you want people to wear it so that there is not the stigma around wearing it that will stop people who are sick from wearing it. And it's not even so bad for me. 
I wear it as a white male walking around San Francisco and people just assume I'm being paranoid. But I have some Asian friends here and they get looked at. They get people saying stuff to them like some of the racist stuff has been really terrible. It's really, really sad. And to your point about stigma, even in San Francisco, that's happening. The other thing, and this is a little bit of a segue and revealing my nerdy side, Maybe a few other folks will have done this, but downloaded Plague Inc., the iPhone game around where you basically have to design a virus to wipe out humanity. And I did this long before this recent outbreak. And the best way to do it was to create a virus that was symptom-free because then it just spreads and then you mutate a couple of things and you make it really deadly and everyone's got it and it's too late to do anything. So that symptom-free thing is really the sting in the tail here that just makes it so difficult to contain. There's a very important implication of this asymptomatic point that I want to get to in a moment. But just to continue on this theme of sort of the big lie, as it were, is that what really makes it fall apart is it's so unsustainable in the age of the Internet. You know, you can imagine a world 30 years ago, 40 years ago, where all of the quote unquote experts in the mainstream media is saying one thing. And yeah, there's cranks around that think that's wrong or disagree with it, but without any sort of means to sort of like connect and amplify, you know, each other's messages, it would never really get traction. So conspiracy theories have been around for a long time, but it's a completely different thing on the internet. And, you know, the whole thing with the conspiracy theories is no longer conspiracy theory if it's true. I mean, this reminds me of the conversation we had about forming communities and how once upon a time, those folks would be on a corner on a soapbox with a piece of paper trying to hand it out in the middle of a pandemic. We were talking about it in the context of hate groups or whatever back then, but now it would have been the equivalent of someone standing on the corner like, the government's lying to you about this virus. And like, I don't know, like without the internet, if I saw someone doing that, trying to hand me a piece of paper in the middle of a pandemic, I would stay well, well, well away from them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this is like a fundamental transformation that has to happen in response to the Internet. And we've talked about this in other contexts, like, for example, the issue of advertising on platforms like Facebook or Google. A really positive response to 2016 is that Facebook has vastly increased the transparency on advertisements and what's happening on the platform. Now you can go on Facebook and you can look at every advertisement that's on there. You can go to whatever account you can search. You can do all these sorts of things. And what happens is you end up with like stories in ProPublica or whatever it is, you know, saying, oh, Facebook is doing these ads that are discriminatory or whatever it might be. The response is like, oh, wow, Facebook is getting worse. No, actually, it's getting better because all that stuff was there, but now it's being revealed and exposed and being cleaned up. And the issue is in a world of abundance, what you need is not to try to cut off the spigot because that's not going to work. It's not possible. You need a way to sort of systematically enable a scalable response, a scalable investigation. In this case, is basically all the ads are out there. Go out there and see what you can find. And it turns out you can find stuff. And that's a great thing. And this is a rule of the Internet in general is that more transparency is enabled by the Internet and is often a key to bad stuff that's going on. And we just didn't know about it. And that applies very much to this question of masks and whatever else you want to talk about. I feel like that's a pretty good segue into the topic that you picked up on the weekly article, which was Twitter seeming to cut against exactly the grain of what it is that we're talking about right now, going from the thing that makes it so powerful, which is enabling 
everyone to have a voice to it starting to play much more of an editorial role. And of course, speaking as someone who's been a fan of regulation in the past on this podcast, being a fan of, you know, no, just cut out the people that I don't like. It comes with the best of intentions. It's like, oh, we're going to support the experts. We just want people to get the news from the experts. But as we've just outlined, like the experts don't always have it right. And not only that, having these dissenting voices, even if sometimes they're crackpots, I think it's a good thing, especially in this situation, you can see why it's a good thing. Yeah. And so this gets back into one of the topics I explored, which is this bit about asymptomatic transmission, which again is pretty widely accepted at this point. And it was pretty widely accepted, frankly, by the end of January and in February. Like there was multiple papers about this in prestigious journals and yes, not peer reviewed because of the speed with which these are coming out. But again, your risk profile on information in some respects needs to change in these environments. Does that mean that some stuff might get wrong? It might be, but there's also a preponderance of evidence sort of standard that takes over where if something is in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine is in science and, you know, and people are presenting evidence in this case, it's okay and appropriate to go in that direction. You don't need to have absolutes. And this idea of uncertainty, we should definitely touch on a little bit. So you had this asymptomatic spread going on. And what happened was the WHO goes to China and they do this investigation. And there's a lot of context around this to understand where the WHO had already said, tweeted on January 14th that there was no human human transmission because that's what China told them. Well, it turns out, one, there was back in December and it was known. Taiwan reported to the WHO at the end of December that this was happening. And the WHO comes out and tweets in the middle of January, no human human transmission, which had been going on for six weeks at this point. So that's context number one. Context number two is China wouldn't let the WHO in for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there was massive negotiation on who's going to go, where they're going to go, all these sorts of things. And this is something where you just have to have been watching China for a long time to understand what's going on here. Which is that, you know, China is very good at these sort of field trips, these chaperone trips where people come in and they stay in a beautiful hotel and they take them to a factory and they take them to a school and all these sorts of things. And they're not allowed to go elsewhere. They're always with people guiding them. And they come back, say, wow, China's amazing. They treat their workers so well. The school is beautiful, very modern, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, you didn't actually see China. This is not to say that China is bad, but you, you just generally you learn by watching China. Talk to people who have been in China for a long time, and they will have amazing things to say about China. There's lots about China that is incredible, and it's modernized rapidly, and, and the cities are amazing. So I'm not saying China is bad. I'm just saying there is a documented history of people who fly in and get a very sanitized version of China. And it seemed pretty clear that this is what happened. You had comments from the people on the trip being like, oh, wow, you know, the hospitals were amazing, nicer than the hospitals that we have in Geneva. And it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm in Taiwan. One of the things that happens is everyone in China that can flies to Taiwan for medical care. And they don't do that because the hospitals are better than Geneva. <laughs> Again, not to say that things have improved rapidly. This isn't saying China's backwards at all. It's just saying it's very likely that this was a very heavily guided sort of trip. Let's put it that way. Right. <laughs> so out of this comes this report. And a lot of the report was useful. It said this was a very serious virus. It did say that the world needs to prepare. It talked about China's response, which, again, to be fair, China's response went against WHO guidelines. But – actually does seem to be effective. Like WHO says quarantines never work. Well, it turns out if you have asymptomatic transmission where people don't know if they're sick or not and you're scaling up tests, it's really the only tool you have. You know, I think it's very reasonable, very suspicious of China's overall numbers. I've looked around a lot and just people that know China or in China suspect it's probably about 10x maybe on cases and deaths. I don't know that. 
I'm just, that's what's out there. But the direction is clear. They did get it under control. They did bring it down. And they brought it down through quarantine, through locking it down, through taking people who were sick and taking them out of their houses and putting them in central quarantines so they couldn't spread to their families. Things that do sound and feel very harsh, but were effective. And it's okay to admit that because it is true. But there's one big part of that report that was really, really problematic. And the part of that report was it said there is no asymptomatic transmission. And they said, oh, it's very, very, very rare. It doesn't happen very often. There was a report on the same time from Kaishin Global that talked about that this was heavily disputed about this aspect of the report. And the Chinese parts of the delegation and the people negotiating with them were saying, no, 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 can't go that. There's no proof. Can't say that's true, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what ended up being in the report. So the WHO ended up saying no asymptomatic transmission as far as we know in China. And then they're saying no masks. And then the CDC is saying WHO says no masks, no masks. The Attorney General is saying CDC says no masks. And you have this chain of expertise that is based on a report that is predicated on a relationship that – and fully biased. I'm from Taiwan. We think the WHO China thing is a mess for years. That is at least worth questioning. And that questioning never happened, and we ended up in a situation where, one – the scale of the virus was likely dramatically underestimated because the numbers weren't right. And then two, the best responses were underappreciated because the reason to have them were hidden. And so you have this world where, yes, there was an aspect of we need to protect the supply for healthcare workers, but they were also acting on bad information. And that bad information came from experts and it came from experts in a world of geopolitical considerations that Twitter is now going to come in and say, we're going to rule on who's right or wrong? Like the only appropriate response to this is, I don't know. We don't know. We can't know. There is so much uncertainty here. And in a world of uncertainty, the very last thing we need a platform doing is saying we know what the truth is. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? The way that that story unfolded, my initial reaction is, why? Why would the WHO, what does it stand to gain by kowtowing in the way that it did? Well, there was a WHO election a few years ago, and China and a group of nations were behind this particular candidate that won. And most of the Western nations were behind a candidate from the United Kingdom. And yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the situation with the NBA where China has all this weight and it's throwing it around in all kinds of ways. In the case of the NBA, it was effectively censoring companies or censoring anybody, using its economic might in order to censor people that dare criticize it. And it's interesting that it's now starting to do that through not-for-profit organizations like health and geopolitical organizations like the WHO. Oh, this is widespread. If you tweet at ICAO, the International Aviation Organization, and ask why isn't Taiwan included, you get blocked because it's basically run by China. Again, I should put my biases on the table here. I live in Taiwan. Taiwan is denied membership to the WHO. They were allowed in after SARS when Taiwan was not involved. They were allowed observer status which was at least a step in the right direction. And then after China's preferred candidate lost the presidential election and the more sort of separate from China party candidate won, China kicked him out of the WHO again. So just to be very clear, like the view here is that WHO is a political tool and pawn in the hands of China as the view in Taiwan for a very long time, just to put my biases on the table. But it certainly seems that there's been a lot of confirming evidence about my priors. Right. 
I mean, maybe I have a similar set of biases, but I would tend to agree. But like so many institutions and organizations and people are relying on these types of organizations to be independent. And the moment that they're not independent, there's this cascading effect, like you said. And the one thing that buttresses us against that is dissent. And you're right, like we don't know. And the dissenting view is even more important in a world where if this is the way that China's going to play, if you accept the hypothesis that you just outlined, and I think it's a reasonable one, this is going to become more widespread. In a world where it becomes more widespread, it's even more important to have the dissenting view. One thing to add is just to be extremely cold-blooded about this, I'm not even mad at China. <laughs> like, There's a part of me that's mad at China because they covered it up and then they didn't release the full scale of it and they pushed for this asymptomatic point. So like, there's a part of me that is very angry about it. There's a cold-blooded part of me, like real politic part of me, that's like China is going to look after its own interests. Like the mass thing where they bought up masks over the world and directed state-owned companies to go into Lowe's and Home Depots and buy up masks. At the end of the day, Countries are going to look after themselves. They're going to look after their citizens. They're going to do what they have to do. I talk about this in the context of Hong Kong, right? Of course, because I'm a Westerner, I'm sympathetic to cries for liberalism and democracy. At the same time, as a realist, I'm like, if I were China, why do I have to listen to Hong Kong based on rules from the UK, which stole it from us? You know what I mean? And so there's an aspect here where you can come at this and be like, look, China is acting like a great nation would act and acting in its own interests. And in light of that, even if you adopt that point of view, that only emphasizes the importance of having a way to challenge and question information. And that is what fell through the floor here. Or in the case of Twitter, it actually didn't fall through the floor. It succeeded wildly, and Twitter is trying to tap it down. Right. The single best part about the Western response was Twitter. It really was. And it lacks in China. Like there's no equivalent of that in China. Your article this week was fantastic because it made this specific issue really come to life in a very tangible way. Like these are the specific ways in this specific situation that it plays out. And Twitter's response feels to be super disappointing. I can't help but feel in the midst of this, as the internet is rising up to help us in a way that it hasn't ever before, there's actually this battle for its soul that's now going on. And I worry we're going to lose it. I don't believe that the numbers that the Chinese are stating around how effective they've been in terms of containing it. But I do accept what you just said, that they have managed to contain it. I think they're lying about the extent to which there were deaths and infection rates and whatever. But put that aside, I think generally speaking, you're right. But the lie on top of it, the extent to how successful they were in containing it, I think a lot of people are starting to buy it and to look across at this other model that they are doing an excellent job of selling all around the world in terms of like minimal deaths, minimal casualties, we have it under control. And now we're sending all these people off to help etc, etc. There's this battle for the soul of the internet that's happening because people are looking at that and they're saying, wow, the Chinese seem to have it under control. This Chinese model of authoritarianism and central control of information. Man, wouldn't it be nice if the US government and the Western government started to do the same thing? And this Twitter example feels like us slipping into the trap of doing the same thing. But the irony of the situation is it's like piecemeal picking 
components of a strategy. In the context of business, we've talked about how a strategy is a collected set of options that make sense together. Picking this off seems to be so stupid because I don't want to give up liberalism. And I think most people in the West don't want to give up liberalism. The one thing about liberalism that's worked well in all this crisis is like you said, it's been Twitter. It's been freedom of speech and freedom of information. The US government was trying to suppress, trying to make scientists not talk about the results that were initially coming out of Seattle. And it was because of Twitter that they were able to get the word out there as to how serious it was. And this started to get the wheels turning. It's like the freedom of information and the ability to speak. It's the same thing with these masks. And the idea that we're going to pull in from China, this piecemeal pick off this, we're going to decide what's right and wrong, and we're going to apply it in the same way the Chinese have inside a liberal democracy just seems to me to be so wrongheaded. Yeah, and just to put a fine point on it, what failed in China was the spread of information because right. they, it was a cover-up. It absolutely was. And the reality is you look at every Western country, they're all struggling to contain this. Like the U.S. had made massive and maybe more mistakes than others, but there is a bipartisanship to this failure, just to be very, very clear. And why? Again, this is not excusing any part of the U.S. response. It's just a matter of if a virus is coming in on multiple vectors and it's super infectious – like, we're all screwed, right? Now, could we deal with it and handle it better? Absolutely, without question. But it was going to sort of erupt regardless where we're at. The only question I was like the scale of the eruption. And so in this case, what failed in China was the lack of information. What succeeded was making people do what they had to do, stay in your house, take people out in quarantine, put them centrally. And so to your point, if we were to mimic something, that is the part to mimic. And again, China does deserve credit for that aspect of it. They did get it under control. But to seize on the, well, let's grab the control information part of it is not just oh. stupid because we support liberalism. It actually is taking the part that made this into a conflagration in the first place. And this is why I've been writing about this again. Because we've been talking about the question of censorship online, of controlling information, of misinformation, of all these sorts of things. And, you know, we have both made the point by and large that, look, there's obviously a cost to misinformation. Quite clearly there is. But what are you losing if you focus on that too much, right? And this is such a concrete example of how critical it is to have dissent. And what should not be lost in this is it's not just volume that matters. It's impact that matters, which means like getting one critical thing right that makes a massive difference is well worth a bunch of misinformation that confirms people's biases. That's not to say misinformation confirming people's biases is a good thing. It's obviously a very problematic thing. We need to be thinking about how to ameliorate and deal with it. But we have to keep in mind the massive, massive upside on the other side. And this entire episode is just such a great example of exactly what we were trying to talk about in theoretical terms previously, right? It was hard to make this argument when people could hold up misinformation. They look at all this misinformation. You think right. this is okay? Oh, you're just talking about something theoretical great outcome. Well, no, we actually now have a theoretical great outcome and the impact is massive. This feels very real to me because again, the journey we've been on together, I probably was on the other side of this. And again, I think I converted well before this recent, <laughs> this recent outbreak, but I am much of a convert. And it is definitely this that makes me realize. Now I see what Twitter's doing and then I hear about them deleting the tweets 
of the Brazilian president, who sounds like a complete crackpot in terms of the way he's dealing with it. It just sounds insane. He's denying it. He's like, oh, Brazilians are tough. You know, we've got the summer. This is nothing more than a bad cold, et cetera, et cetera. And they're deleting it. And on some level, that feels good. But it's the recognition of the trade-off that we then make by enabling a centralized authority to come in and start making those decisions. And now I feel like I can equally wait in terms of exactly what it is that you've been arguing here. I guess we've been arguing more recently, but going further back, it was much more you arguing around this, which is like, you can't have it both ways. So you've got to decide where you want to draw the line in terms of the trade-off. And this whole episode and the way that you articulated what I was driving at with the soul of the internet, it has put me very much down on the side of like, don't come in and think you know best. And I realize it's with good intentions because way back when, when I would have argued like, yes, we need to control this, it was with good intentions. And now, like, are we really going to put someone in charge of deciding what's right and wrong when there are so many instances of the people that should know what's right and wrong getting it wrong? It just makes no sense to me anymore. And again, we had the U.S. federal government denying this for weeks, right? Right. Like, guess where the enforcement mechanism would be if we had government in charge? Yeah. And this gets back to the point I was trying to make. I talk about the Facebook and the ads thing. And this idea is the internet is all about scale. It's just massive amounts of information, right? The key, though, you get these very tight feedback loops because you have this, like, we talk about zero marginal costs, zero transaction costs. There is, like, zero cost to stating an opinion, for example, right? And so you go out and you say, what you think you know. And then the great thing is you can come back and you can change it the next day. You can iterate on it. I wrote a post a few years ago called Books Versus Blogs that articulate like, yeah, I probably should write a book at some point, but I haven't. I may never do. And one of the reasons I cited was Shashekari in the Daily Update is like an ongoing journal of my sort of attempt to understand and describe the world as it's going on. And what's great about that is I can say something one day and someone can email me or contact me or new information come out. I come back to the next day and say, well, guess I was wrong. That wasn't right. And it turns out if your actual goal is to be right, the best way to be right is to correct when you're wrong as quickly as possible. And so much of our entire thought process and the elite structure in our society is around a book structure, which is a book. Once it's published, it's published. Yeah. It's out there. And so you have months of fact checkers and corrections and all this sort of stuff and going back and forth because when it's out there, it's out there. And so we have this idea where, oh, the experts are not going to recommend masks because they can't guarantee they work. Well, guess what we can do? We can put them out there and experiment, right? We can start figuring stuff out. We can make decisions ahead of time because we can always change them because our means of communication has zero marginal costs. We can adjust. We can go forward. And this is what I mean about transparency. How much more trust would you have in experts if they came out much more frequently and said, we don't know. We're not sure what's going on with this virus. It's something we've never seen before. It seems to spread more rapidly than symptoms suggest. We're trying to watch people with fear, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I try to do this in the daily update, but I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back, but like doubt is your biggest weapon for building credibility. Like just say you don't know. And when you're wrong, say, I got it wrong. This is why I got it wrong. Here's the new information that changed my perspective. And this mindset and approach is just missing from so much of the elite centered discourse in our country. 
your insight right then and the way you articulated it around how the internet's changed this, like once upon a time, you put it in a book and you go to the mat to defend it versus the nature of the internet, like let's iterate quickly to get to the right answer, I think was phenomenal. And it's just a shame that so many of our political leaders are stuck in that old model of just like, I'm going to put this out there and I'm going to defend it. And it's like, I'm going to avoid the egg on face as opposed to just like, okay, you know what, this is what we thought. It's an emerging situation. This is the best information we have. Okay, now we're out there. We've learned something else. We're going to correct. And it's just so lacking. I feel like I want to start a political party that's called the flip-flop party. Like instead of the whole thing in (laughs) politics where being a flip-flopper is a pejorative, it's like, no, we embrace flip-flopping. Yeah, totally. And it's also predicated on just being honest with people. So I tried to research a little bit about this, as I'm sure lots of folks have. And I joined a webinar and it was by someone who had spent a lot of time researching crises and how people get through them. And one of the things that was really interesting was he mentioned this concept called the Stockdale Paradox, where named after a gentleman who was captured in the Vietnam War. He became a POW. He was a naval officer. It basically talked about two opposite things that need to be present when you're communicating with people in a crisis. And it is, you've got to be brutally honest, but you've got to give people a reason for hope. And it feels like trying to toe the line between those two people swing way too far on one side or the other. It's like looking at the president, there've been instances where he's given people hope, but he hasn't done a good job of basing it in the truth. And it it came to mind as we were talking about this, it's like the truth is so critical, but it's also like part of being honest with people about this is like, we don't know, or this is the best we've got right now. We don't think it's helping, but maybe it does. And you're right. Like, given that's the best knowledge we have, go out there and try new things. And this is where I think the media, generally speaking, it's a loaded term to use these days, but it's funny, like this extreme skepticism that the mainstream media gives Trump is actually a much more appropriate posture for an age where authority figures can go directly to people, right? If you go back 50 years, the president needed the media to spread what he had to say. So there was a certain appropriateness to the media sort of saying, oh, this is what the experts say, this is what the president says, and we're, we're distributing it to the world. Well, when the president's on Twitter, he doesn't need the media, right? So the media response to Trump has been very challenging. But the question I have is, why aren't you challenging China's numbers? Why aren't you challenging the CDC recommendations? Why aren't you challenging the WHO? Why weren't you challenging President Obama after the great financial crisis and their response to it? Why aren't yeah. you challenging President Bush in the Iraq war to the extent you are President Trump? And this is not to excuse Trump. The point is that in a world of massive information where people in authority, like the Brazilian president, can project their message directly, there is an appropriateness to challenging it and questioning it and not challenging it and questioning it with a similar level of authority saying my authority is better than your authority. No, doubt, doubt, doubt. Doubt is a good thing. It is a healthy thing. And that is what has been missing. There's this tendency, I think it's probably a human tendency, but it's where so many people go wrong. It's something that China has been very good at taking advantage of, which is people like to grab onto and hold on to numbers, right? And you've seen this in the discussion of the U.S. response, right? There's all this talk about testing. The U.S. testing is lacking. There isn't missing. And appropriately, for the first couple of days, when there was news about U.S. case numbers, you know, it would say, well, but there's probably a lot more because we're lacking in tests, right? That is disappearing. People are passing around charts about how many cases there are, and there's no caveat that, oh, by the way, we're not actually testing enough. 
And by the way, most other countries aren't testing enough. In China, we just skipped that first page. Like, you had all your words, oh, China, zero deaths. Or China had, like, it stated authoritatively that China had 8,000 deaths or whatever it is. And there is no addition of doubt. And I'm not saying that I know what the right numbers are. I like to go out there and say, oh, I know for a fact actually it was 80,000 deaths. I don't know that. I don't know. But just as the fact I don't know it's 80,000, I also don't know that it's 8,000. There is too much deference to hard numbers and authorities and not nearly enough challenging and doubt in saying that we don't really know. Like our entire structure built around this newspaper model, built around this book publishing model, it just searches for, seizes for something that is certain, something that is a hard number that you can latch onto and you can print. And it just doesn't work on the internet. This is reminding me of something that I learned early on in my career in consulting. So you'd build models, like clients would come to you with problems and you'd need to model them in some way or another. And I remember being very proud one day early on in my career of building this very sophisticated model with all these different variables. It could handle all kinds of things. And one of the partners came along and started to use it and... (laughs) He started using it and the numbers spat out. He laughed at me like I just laughed then. And he's like, James, one thing that you really need to understand if you want to be effective in situations, especially ambiguous situations, is you need to understand the difference between precision and accuracy. Right now, you've built this incredibly precise model. Precision makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're in control of the situation. I don't need you to care about your feelings. What I need right now is an accurate number. And you do something much simpler than this. You probably get us a much more accurate number that in turn is going to be able to help the client a lot more. And I feel like that's exactly the nature of the problem we have here. These numbers feel very precise. You're right. They're very hard. But you're in a situation where there's exponential growth and there's five-day lag because people get the virus and it's five days before they start showing symptoms. If they start showing symptoms at all, focusing on that testing rate when you've got community transmission and it's exponentially exploding just seems to be barking up the wrong tree. Like, yeah, of course we want tests, but right now you need to start moving into a containment and anchoring on the numbers, even if they're wrong, again, wrong-headed. There's an analogy I would draw. This is uh, maybe a bit of a wild one, but something we've talked about previously. You remember a few years ago, I wrote an article called Apple's Organizational Crossroads. Mm. And the point of that article is that Apple is this finely tuned machine for producing these jewel-like products like once a year, right? Which, by the way, might not happen this year, but we'll see what happens. But part of that is they have the hardware and software integrated. But the entire point of like releasing a new iPhone is you release the iPhone and you release the operating system, the new version, in this date in September, and it's all going to come together, right? And that's going to be sort of the finished product. You think about hardware and software being different, but in this case, the means of development are actually quite similar. You are building towards a specific date, a specific release, and there's actually a much more traditional method of software development, like the old box software days, right? You think about box software, it was like publishing a book, you know? You had the, what are the words? You had like CD master and release candidates and all these sorts of things. And the idea was you're going to build to get the best version, most bug-free version that you could because back in the day when you bought a box in the store, you didn't have the internet to upgrade it. So it had to work as well as it possibly could when you installed it, right? And an iPhone is actually similar. Yes, of course, you can do upgrades. But when you open up that box, they want it to be mostly all functioning and working very well. And so it's a certain development mindset that has an end state and goal and seeking to minimize problems, minimize bugs, make it as good as it can be on the day that it ships. And Apple's entire organization is built 
built around this idea. There's a certain cadence to it. There's a certain approach. There's a way of killing bugs. There's a way of triaging that is all about hitting that September date. Mm -hmm. The opposite, though, is Internet services. Internet services feel like they're similar to it's all software, right? Actually, they're totally different. Operating system development is much closer to device development in the way that you work because you're building towards like a finished product. Internet services, there is no finished product. It will never be finished. And part of the problem is you deal with so many variables. Like I'm trying to connect to a service from Taiwan on my iMac. You're trying to connect from San Francisco via a different connection on your phone. Like there's a million variables, especially if you think about scaling to millions or billions of people. It's an astronomical, cannot be calculated number of variables. And so the way you build internet services is you build them to fail gracefully and they are constantly improving, iterating, and you get feedback loops where you get how people use it, how people respond to it, where they fail, and that automatically feeds back into it improving, maybe with people doing it, maybe does it automatically because that's how the algorithms work. And so there is no finish state because your goal is not to build the perfect piece of internet software. Your goal is to build a self-sustaining system. Yeah, continually improving. That's exactly right. Continually improving. And, you know, the more the most classic examples of Apple getting this wrong was in MobileMe, where they had this big launch of this beautiful Internet service. So there's be all these sorts of things. And it was a disaster. And it was a disaster because it was built with this. We're going to get this launch date operating system sort of mindset. And actually, it was just a complete way to think about approaching and building Internet software. And Apple, you know, is still struggling with this. And it's an organizational issue because if you have an organization that's predicated on one way of development and you need to do a completely different sort of development, it's very hard to have that in the organization. And that was the point of that article is that Apple needs to actually split up their organization because you need two different ways to work. And I think they've moved that way down a bit. But the reason why this is uh, useful and analogy is I think that has to be the approach and the shift in mindset to information production and consumption. The pre-internet world was about printing a newspaper, printing a book, and you did your best to get it right when you printed. And yeah, were experts wrong sometimes? They absolutely were. Go read a history of the Vietnam War and you want to worry about experts getting it really, really wrong. But because of the constraints of the technology, that was the best we could do was have the experts try to get it right and then distribute it to people and tell them what to do. We're not in that world anymore. We're in a world where it's possible to have constant continuous feedback, constant continuous information distribution and consumption. And what needs to shift is the mindset of consumers of information and producers of information to adopt this new way of thinking, new way of approach to come out and say, we don't know. This is what we think right now, but it's going to be subject to change and not come out with a tweet saying, should you wear a mask? No. Is it going to be a pandemic? No. Like the authority with which so many figures were stating what wasn't going to happen in January or February is astounding. This is the most uncertain and unknown event in our lives. There is no one on the planet that has any idea how this is going to play out. And to approach that with a book publishing mindset where we're going to state something authoritatively is madness. And we're all paying the price for it. I 100% agree. I think Pulling in the example is super helpful. The approach to uncertainty is 100% right. I love that example because it is also illustrative of the point that we were talking about earlier around 
societies have, like in the same way companies have built a strategy in order to succeed, I feel like us trying to take this piece of the information control from China is like Amazon trying to take from Apple, we're going to ship perfect devices every so often. And we saw what happened with the Fire Phone. It, you can't selectively pick pieces of a strategy and just drop it in a completely different context and hope that it's right. That's interesting. That actually confirms my thesis that I should never write a book <laughs> because uh, if Amazon can't make the Fire Phone, maybe the blogger can't make a book. <laughs> I don't want to underestimate you, Ben Thompson. I feel like <laughs> doing that would be a mistake. Nevertheless, the realness, like we've spoken about this for a hundred and something episodes. So I think people have their heads wrapped around the company strategy stuff and the tech side better. And I feel like grounding it in that is helpful. And I think both you doing it with the uncertainty of information and the approach to attacking it and how blogs differ from books, but also just like how the trap we're going to fall into if we selectively pick pieces of a very different comprehensive strategy and hoping it's going to work over here. And it's just going to obviate one of the biggest strengths that we have. And it's like, I really hope we don't do it. And it's sad to see it even being considered because it's one of the strengths of what the system has. And yeah, like strengths are related to weaknesses, of course, but I would hate to lose this. It's like one of the best parts about Western liberalism. Well, it's not just the best part. It's the one thing, to your point, that has functioned properly. Right. And in the long run, in a world where, you know, you need more innovation, you need new ways, you know, I think it's safe to assume that a lot of trends that would have taken decades to play out are going to be pulled forward because of what is happening now. That's probably the best way to think about predicting the future and what's going to come after this is not that something radical is going to happen, but rather things that would have happened in 10 years are now going to happen in one year or two years. In that world, you need more distributed learning. You need more distributed sort of innovation. You need more coming up from the grassroots to figure stuff out. And the great thing that we have is the internet, like the internet enabling this, unlocking this. I say a line like this. <laughs> I keep saying it again and again, and I need to come up with a better way of saying it because it's just to be clear, this idea of embracing internet assumptions. What do I mean by that? I mean, embracing the fact that there is a million ideas and a million things out there. And guess what? The vast, vast majority of them are terrible and wrong right? But in a world where there's way more bad information, there is also way more good information. And this is why Google, I don't remember if we talked about this on here, but Google is the greatest tech company ever. And the reason is because it is one of the ultimate examples of a tool that lets you benefit from the massive amount of information and get it distilled to what is the good piece of information to find it. That's the miracle of Google. Google gets better and stronger the more information that is on the internet. And it doesn't matter. This is the key thing. It doesn't matter if that information is good or bad. Just the virtue of there being more information makes Google better and more useful because even if you have a world where Every 100 pieces of information, 99 are bad and one are good. Guess what? If you have an infinite amount of information, you now have infinitely more good information as long as you have a way to find it and to distill it. That's the model. That's the way we need to think about it. So if you're a publisher, the goal is not to be authoritative on February 1st about what's going to happen 
with this virus three months from now is say, this is what we have. Like, we have questions about this. There's things to be concerned about. There's a great article that we'll link to from 538 this week that was saying, like, why they haven't built a model about this. They're the model building site, right? Why they haven't built a model? Why is it so hard to build a model? And basically went through, there's so many variables in this epidemic and so many things that are unknown and so many factors that can influence it, right? The rate of transmission, if you wear masks, it's going to be different than if you don't. If you have a lot of ventilators, fewer people are going to die. If you have fewer, they're not going to like, So how can you project what's actually going to happen? And that was way more useful than a million other articles that took models at face value and said, oh, this is going to happen because it gave you a framework to think about, oh, wait, these are the inputs into what's going to happen. Like we can focus on different things. And this is where I found the mass thing very productive. Like here is one thing we can talk about and do. And again, we need to save them for healthcare workers. We need to massively increase production, but we can wear homemade ones. Like that's something that we can do. It's an actionable thing that we can do. And oh, by the way, that it will have an impact on spread. Is it going to be a perfect impact? Is it going to block every virus? No, but by the way, N95s don't block every virus either. Sorry, I'm kind of ranting, but this is the final point I would make is a key thing about this continuous improvement idea is it's all about getting better. It's not about the perfect. What has happened is failure after failure, whether it be the FDA, whether it be the CDC, whether it be the media, whether it be world leaders or USA's leader, is this demand for perfection. We need to know exactly what's going to happen. We need to have proof this is going to happen. These are the numbers. It's a grasping for perfection where you end up grasping for bad data because you just want something to hold on to. And what we actually need is the good and the better at the better. And maybe we start out at a very low level of good. It's mostly bad. But if we have a function that is continually improving, that's continually making it better and better, we will end up in a much, much better place instead of just, well, we don't know the perfect, so I guess we can't do anything. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's one other aspect to this, which is I feel almost like the water that we've been swimming in that we haven't realized. But I was reflecting on this for work what it would be like to go through this without the internet right now, I can't imagine. So we faced a challenge like this 100 years ago, and it was a pandemic in an age where you're relying on newspapers, you're relying on experts. Like the extent that we're able to have this debate, the extent that things are still functioning right now, and I don't want to diminish how much things are breaking and people are hurting and people are dying and people are losing jobs. Like I don't want to diminish any of that, but the extent that we're still able to function at all right now is kind of crazy. And the internet has been the whipping child for people, especially since 2016 with Trump and like put whatever you think about him aside, but how it's been blamed for so many of the years. But I honestly can't even imagine what it would be like going through this a hundred years ago, hell, even 30 years ago, without the internet being able to keep us connected, to keep things going, to keep this research going, to be able to have these debates around whether we should use masks, to be able to continue to talk to you and family if they're not nearby and friends. Like, I don't know. There's an immense amount of gratitude I have. Like this whole thing is causing me to realize there's a lot of things that I have to be grateful for. But one thing that I think is worth calling out on this episode is the extent to which the wheels have not fallen off society. So much of that is because of this amazing thing that increasingly, I don't know, we've just taken for granted. And I just think it's pretty phenomenal that in the midst of this crisis, it has managed to keep us more together than we otherwise would be. The idealism is back, huh? Yeah. 
I guess so. It turns out that the internet was changing the world all along. Yeah, and we just didn't realize it. And, and you know, this is going to resonate for a long time. People are already aware, and it's going to become increasingly obvious, that the one sector of society that did its job was tech. Nothing has gone down, whether it be from an infrastructure level, from a cloud services level, from all these applications level. That is something that people are going to remember. Like, this is going to be a seminal moment. And it gets to the point that tech or the internet generally is an amoral force. We have to decide if it's for good or for bad. It's so easy to take for granted the good parts, like it actually working, and to focus on and find the bad parts. And it turns out that that's not an excuse for the bad things. It's a drive to push to get better and better. But again, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's pretty good. (laughs) And let's try to keep making it better without demanding perfection. Yeah, there's definitely a lens on this where these issues are demanding it be perfect whether it's clamping down on twitter or or more generally it's just like it is pretty good and like that good is actually one of its best attributes there is no perfect here that's right it's the exact same as the bad that's the thing right Right. the fact the internet can scale to this disaster and can handle it gracefully is the exact same forces and reasons that result in misinformation that result in bad behavior and that's not to excuse the misinformation bad behavior it's just to appreciate it's two sides of the same coin and and let's do better but let's not expect we're going to only get the good stuff and none of the bad stuff yeah right totally well i'm glad you're safe i'm glad you have your freezer (laughs) glad you have your home gym (laughs) <laughs> I may never see you again. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, worst case, we can still talk to each other on the internet, though, right? That's right. That's right. Very good. I'll talk to you soon. Stay safe. Yeah, and to everybody out there, as we said last time, it continues to evolve rapidly, but look after yourself and look after your loved ones. That's right. Talk to you later. Bye.